You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for February 22nd, 2023, Ash Wednesday. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20b through chapter 6, verse 10. So as my time with you here at St. Mark's comes to an end, I've been reflecting on so much that we've shared in our time together. One of the most powerful conversations of my last ten and a half years was with one of you. It was over in the chapel, maybe ten rows back, following the Wednesday morning healing service, I think, which we used to do at 9.30 on Wednesdays before the pandemic. One of you had just received a cancer diagnosis. It was very new and you were preparing for a surgery in the weeks ahead and you looked at me and you said, I want for this to be a spiritual experience. And I was floored. I was completely gobsmacked. I was in awe at this by the beauty and the strength of your desire. For God to make something of the suffering which you knew you were about to endure. The ensuing months were, I have to say, most beautiful in their own way. You underwent treatment, all successful, thanks be to God, and thanks be to God you are now well. All while remaining joyful, cheerful even, and resolved that God was at work in you through your trial. This is but one of many stories I could tell you about the people of God in this place. There are stories of the resilience of which St. Paul speaks in our second lesson this afternoon. A great deal is made these days of psychological resilience, the ability psychologically and mentally to cope and contend with hardship or trauma. No wonder, given how battered so many of us were mentally by the pandemic and how shocked so many of us were by the psychological difficulty, actually, of emerging from said pandemic and entering into what we call normal life, whatever that is. But resilience of the sort that St. Paul enjoins the Corinthians to includes the psychological, but it is not reducible to it. He's talking about something more than a coping mechanism or uh, some sort of strength of mind. What St. Paul is talking about explains how the person I met in the chapel that morning could mentally accept and process a new and difficult diagnosis, determine, resolve to find a spiritual meaning in it, and so on. But it's not just that. It's not just that mental power of determination. Spiritual resilience is not merely a mindset. It is the saving knowledge that a new reality is taking root in you. It is the hope that comes from knowing that God is doing something with you. Something that has to do, in fact, with what God is doing mysteriously with the whole world. The passage from 2 Corinthians assigned for today, which Amanda read for us, really begins earlier in the letter. 
but begins with an extraordinary statement by Paul that we do not lose heart. Then he proceeds to elaborate on why it is that we don't lose heart. That's where our passage falls into the context of the whole letter. So we do not lose heart, Paul says. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us, I love this, for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. An eternal weight of glory. And Paul elaborates on this eternal weight of glory, explains what it means by comparing it to being clothed with a new building. Okay, so his poetry professor wouldn't have given him extraordinarily high marks for the confusing mixed metaphor, but, here's, but Paul is trying to use this metaphor to explain the resurrection, uh, the power of the resurrection. He talks about us being clothed with a heavenly dwelling. That's the way that he puts it. That is the eternal weight of glory for which we are being prepared by our this-worldly afflictions. Now, there are two things going on here spiritually in this passage earlier in the chapter of 2 Corinthians. There are two ways that Paul says we can spiritually not lose heart. The first has to do with that contrast between the inner and the outer nature that I was referring to. It's not to give the outer, the appearance, the visible and readily experienceable too much weight. It is important. The affliction is real, but it is not what is most real about you. What is most real about you and about the world is invisible. It is the inner. And though the outer may waste away, the inner is being renewed day by day. That's the first thing. The second is to see the big picture. The whole sweep of God's gracious dealings with all of creation. And more to the point, the whole sweep of God's gracious dealings with you, of which your affliction is a part. That is to be able to see your affliction as part of a long process which is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. Perspective and promise. That is how Christians do not lose heart. And most fortunately, neither this new perspective on the world, which allows us to see and to recognize the stability and solidity of what is inner and invisible, nor the promise that God is not done with us even when we die. Most fortunately, neither this perspective nor this promise have anything to do with what we've done or must do, but rather with what God has done and what God is still doing for us in Jesus. Our lesson this afternoon picks up with this theme, which Paul is explaining by putting a twist on the ancient understanding of reconciliation. That's where we pick up in our lesson today. Now, reconciliation in the ancient world, as it does now, meant the repairing of a broken relationship, the restoration of friendship between people, the erasure of enmity, and it could be either personal or political. In the political context, then, as often now, it was affected by ambassadors, which is exactly what Paul says we are in the case of God and the world. 
This is actually in the first half of the verse, which begins our lesson this afternoon. We pick up with part B of this verse. Part A is, so we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, and so on. And then the lesson continues. So we are the ambassadors in the case of God in the world. The twist that Paul is putting on ancient reconciliation, which is difficult for us to see from our modern vantage point, but would have been obvious to the people to whom he's writing is this. That in the ancient world, it was absolutely, very clearly, and without exception, incumbent on the one who was to blame for the breakdown of the relationship to seek reconciliation and repair. It's always incumbent on the one whose fault the broken relationship is to seek reconciliation. It is not incumbent on the one who was injured. And in the case of God in the world, Paul says, it works in just the opposite way. God is the one who was wronged and betrayed from Adam's sin to Judas's kiss. And yet, it is God who seeks reconciliation. It is God who repairs the breach and restores the streets, to quote our lesson from Isaiah. That is, in Paul's words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And that's another extraordinary thing, too. It's another twist that Paul is putting on ancient reconciliation. Because God is the one doing the repairing, not us. We're let off the hook. And, I mean, really, actually let off the hook. Not counting their trespasses against them. Paul means that. They're not counted against us. They're just not. Because... For our sake, Paul says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an incredibly cryptic and confusing phrase in our lesson. But it's referring to a marvelous exchange, a kind of Yankee swap, like we play at Christmas, wherein God takes our sin and we take his holiness. God takes our death, and we take his life. And this is what is happening in Jesus, according to Paul. This commercium admirable, as the church fathers called it, beloved of Christians from Athanasius to Martin Luther, this swapping of sin and death for righteousness and life, this is the context, the big picture in which all of our sins and afflictions sit. And because Paul's inner nature rests secure in the conviction that he and God are okay in Christ. He and God are really, truly okay. Okay beyond the shadow of a doubt. And his knowledge that God in Christ has made it so that all that is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This perspective and this promise enable him to persevere and persist through the laundry list of tribulations he proceeds to name in excruciating detail, 
hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, and so on. If something can happen to you, Paul names it here or in one of his other affliction lists in the other letters. It might look like Paul's a nobody, but Paul is known to the Lord. It might look like he's dying, but see, he is alive. And it is all because of what God has done for him. This is the joy that I and so many, I think, find in Paul's letters. I love Lent. I didn't grow up with Lent. I grew up in a tradition which didn't celebrate it, but I I really do love it. It's one of my favorite things about being an Anglican or Episcopalian, about being in a liturgical tradition. I love purple. I love ashes. I love time set aside for new spiritual practices and so on. But I think there's a danger in Lent that we use it as an opportunity in February or early March to make up on the fact we've already reneged on all of our New Year's resolutions. We make it into one more program in self-betterment, one more exercise in self-improvement and self-help. When the, the purpose of the season of Lent is to strike the self out of the equation all together, which is good news, because I am so sick and tired of self-help. So exhausting to walk through that section at Barnes & Noble. Oh my gosh, so many projects, so many ways to improve myself. Wah! It's exhausting. It is tempting to make Lent into one more trip through the self-help section. And I, please people, don't do it. At least not this year. Gosh, go back to it after I'm gone. Don't do it right now. (laughs) The penitence, the fasting, the forgiveness, the consolation of this season and of this day, the, the invitation to a Holy Lent which Father Peter is about to read to us. Everything about this day, from the readings, to the ashes, to the litany, to the declaration of forgiveness, to the Eucharist. All of it is meant to work together to confect in you the recognition of God's grace. It is not meant to be one more program for you to fix your life. It is meant to show you God has fixed it for you. And all there is for you is to accept it and to live into that new life. All of it is meant to work together to confect in you the renewal of the inner nature, the conviction of the eternal weight of glory, the knowledge that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, which can make us resilient to everything from cancer to compunction. And it is a resilience altogether different from the one offered us by the world. The world gives us the assurance, doubtful at best, that we can do anything. The message of Lent actually is that there's a very great deal that you can't. A very great deal that you cannot do. But I pray you to be like the one of your number whom I met that morning in the chapel. Do not lose heart. It has already been done for you. Wrongs righted and dust destined for glory. All by the one who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanaan.org.